Tonight's scripture is from Mark chapter 6, verses 13 through 29. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Well, good evening. Good evening. It is good to see all of you. Welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosher, and it is my privilege to be able to open the word with you and for you this evening. So if you're not already there in your Bible, can you please turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. It's nice and dark in here. It's not as cool as it normally is, and there's the sound of rain. So we're going to all do our best to stay awake this evening. I'm feeling a little lulled and sleepy up here, so I can imagine how it is out there. But it is, um, it is so good to see you. I really cannot think of anywhere I'd rather be um, than with you all tonight. So thanks for um, making it out through the weather. I want to start this evening with uh, what in many ways is an unusual way to start, um, start a sermon. I want to ask you a question, which is this. What would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? And I just want you to think about that for a minute and give it some consideration. What is it that you would be willing to suffer, suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ? I mean, if I'm honest, I ask that question really with no expectation of what your answer would be or, or what response you would give. 
I mean, when we think about things like persecution or suffering, our minds very quickly uh, go to uh, historical context, like the Fox's Book of Martyrs or things like that, people who suffered and died, physical, literal, painful deaths for their faith. Our minds go likewise to brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing suffering and persecution and death right now. We think of brothers and sisters in countries like China who are meeting in underground churches, meeting in houses, unable to gather together in public places and sing and worship and discuss and talk and love one another in the way that we're able to do it. But if you had to answer for yourself in your mind the question, what would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? I mean, the truth is most of us have given that very little, if any, thought at all. And the truth is, most of us have suffered very little for our faith. I mean, maybe, if you're in this room, maybe you've been slighted. Or maybe you've been spoken too harshly. Maybe you've been ridiculed. But for most of us, our faith has cost us very little, at least at the hands of others. The most suffering that most of us have experienced have been the internal struggles of our faith, where there are things we've needed to give up, or lifestyles that have needed to change, perhaps even relationships that needed to be broken in order for you to be able to move forward in your faith. Maybe you've experienced the persecution of family, criticism, or ostracization. But what if that were to change? What if the freedom and the simplicity with which we've been able to engage our faith, what if that shifted? What if the growing animosity towards Christianity that's displayed itself recently, whether in protests in Portland or in academia, in workplace guidelines and even certain pieces of legislation, what if those things began to grow exponentially? to the point where there was a very real and practical cost to your faith. How might it affect your belief? See, that ultimately is the question that's addressed in the narrative that we're looking at this evening. And if you remember last week, as Dave was preaching on the passage just prior to this, he talked about the idea of what it is to be called by God. In other words, what has God done in, in, in a means of predestining you and calling you and choosing you for himself to be saved and to know him and to live in relationship with him and to walk with him and to become his son or his daughter? And then ultimately, what has he done then to send you into the mission field into which you're called, which as Dave talked about last week, starts at home and works its way out. That was where we left off last week, and so therefore it is no coincidence that in the recording that Mark gives for us here, that just as the disciples have left to enter the ministry into which they've been sent, Mark records for us the story of John paying the cost to follow Jesus. In other words, Mark's narrative is very intentional in aligning these two ideas. There is inherently a cost to discipleship, and there is a cost to minister in the way that God has called you to minister. And that leads us to the follow-up question, which is this. What was it that led John the Baptist to follow Jesus? 
And that's the question I want you to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we look at this text today. Because in this book that's intended to give us a face-to-face picture of who Jesus is, it's intended to introduce you to Jesus so that you can recognize him, so that you can know who he is, so that you can walk in relationship with him. In a book that's designed intentionally to put Jesus in front of you, there are exactly two stories in this book that are not explicitly about Jesus. And interestingly, both of them are about John the Baptist. The second one of those stories is what we're going to address this evening. And if you remember from earlier in our study, really going back to Mark chapter 1, we were introduced to this character named John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, one who was known for the baptismal ministry that he performed. And it was ultimately John's arrest that led into the inauguration of Jesus' preaching ministry. In fact, if you go back and read Mark chapter 1, it says that upon John's arrest, that was, the, that was the appointed time at which Jesus Christ recognized that his preaching and teaching ministry was to begin. And this passage that we have before us this evening gives us the details of John's story. Jesus and the disciples have been ministering in the region in this very significant moment. Jesus has actually handed over ministry to the disciples for the first time that's recorded for us in the New Testament. Jesus is not just the one ministering with these disciples kind of helping him or watching him, but he has actually charged them and equipped them and placed them and sent them to go do the ministry. And it's with all of this context that we're introduced to a man named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of a man named Herod the Great. You'll recognize that Herod from Jesus' birth story. If you remember the story, there were wise men that were going to seek this newborn king, this Jesus that was going to be the Messiah, the king of all kings. And Herod the Great, upon hearing the news of the arrival of this king that was to surpass even his greatness, wanted them to report back as to where they had found this child. And he told them, I want you to come back and tell me if you find the Messiah, because I want to go worship him as well. But, of course, his intention was actually to murder the infant Jesus. A cruel and despicable man. And when word did not come back to him as to the particular identity of who this Christ child, this Messiah, was, he put out an order saying that all of the Hebrew male children should be killed. Do you remember the slaughter that happened? That is this Herod's father. And whenever you see the name Herod come up, whether it's, in, whether it's in Scripture or whether it's in history, you should just look at the surrounding passages because they were a cruel and heartless people. Well, that Herod, Herod the Great, had legitimate power. He was known as the king of this region. He was the Roman consulate in this area. He was the one who represented the power of the empire and the power of the emperor himself in this, in this region. And upon his death, The power that had been granted to him by Rome was dispersed into four different people, what they called tetrarchs. And that's who this Herod Antipas was. He was one of the four people who took power from his father and was now ruling over this little fiefdom. So he became became known as Herod the King, Herod Antipas. We're introduced to this man who was known for his cruelty and his craftiness, so much so that Jesus, speaking of Herod Antipas, in Luke chapter 13, referred to him as that fox. A shrewd and cunning man. And this exchange that we see in front of us today is the first time that Herod becomes aware of the existence 
of this man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That picks us up in verse 13. And they, that is the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. As Herod discusses these events, he's discussing everything that he's heard about this man named Jesus. All the miracles and all the teaching and all the amazing things that Jesus had been able to do. The advisors with whom he's speaking begin to share their opinions as to Jesus' identity. And you'll recognize again uh, the the conversation that they have about Jesus. It's the age-old conversation that the disciples themselves had about him. They say, well, maybe he's Elijah. I mean, after all, if you remember Elijah, Elijah had the power through God to call down fire from heaven to destroy the prophets of Baal. That was the kind of miraculous power that Jesus had on display when he calmed the sea or cast out demons. And others said, no, that's that's not him. He is a prophet. I mean, just listen to the words of Jesus. Just listen to him teach. Listen to the way that he explains the Torah. He speaks on behalf of God. In Israel. And even in this brief discussion, we see a picture into the human soul because people are always looking for a way to make sense of Jesus. I mean, people naturally, we want, we want to figure out how to explain the unexplainable. We want to figure out how to explain Jesus in a way that fits our natural understanding. We want to be able to put him into a box, something that makes sense to us. We desperately want that. So much so that for these people, it was easier for them to believe that Jesus was actually Elijah or the beheaded John come back to life than to believe the evidence that was in front of them that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And Herod's response, his conclusion, is wholly different. This is John, whom I beheaded. And he says this with no sense of uncertainty and no doubt in his voice. He just declares it. This is John, whom I beheaded. And in this moment, you get a picture into the heart of Herod. Because here is this man who had power in the region, who had fear of no one other than perhaps the emperor himself. And Herod's conclusion in this moment reveals his own fear and guilt. Because in hearing the message of Jesus... He's hearing the very same message that he assumed he had destroyed when he killed John the Baptist. And he's saying, I went out of my way and I killed this man for the message that he was declaring to me. And here is another one preaching exactly the same thing. Herod in this moment is terrified and guilty. And Jesus, he's reminded that though he killed John the Baptist, John's message was continuing on. And it was John's message, if you remember, that got him into trouble to begin with. Mark backfills the story for us. He says this in verse 17, giving you the history that these people would have already known. He says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. See, Herod had an interesting relationship with John the Baptist, and it's one that doesn't always come through uh, in, a, in, in at least a, a, an initial reading of the passage, because what you find in verse 20 is equally as interesting. I'm going to read it for you from the New International Version, because I think it actually does a better job of explaining the dynamic here. Here's what that translation says, verse 20. Because Herod feared John, he protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. I mean, this is an interesting dynamic between these two men. Herod was intrigued by John. He found John in some way or another to be engaging, maybe even charming, certainly interesting in his own way. I mean, you'll remember the description of John that's given for us, uh, the description of what a strange person he was by any external standard. That he was living out in the wilderness, far away from the cities and far away from the synagogues in which you ordinarily would have expected someone like him to be teaching and preaching. And as if that wasn't enough, we're told that he's wearing camel skin and that he's eating locusts and wild honey. Now, compound all of that with the fact that from his very birth, his parents, on his behalf, had declared him to be a Nazarite. He had taken the Nazarite vow, this consecration, to observe and love his God and creator. And so as part of that recognition, he was not allowed to drink anything that came from grapes, including wine, which would have made him culturally odd and unique. Here's this man who, for some reason, is not drinking wine like everybody else is. And as if that's not enough, as part of his vow, he wasn't able to cut his hair. So you can imagine the sight and the smell that John must have been. This man eating bugs and honey with a beard and long hair, wearing camel skin in the wilderness. He would have stood out in a crowd. But there was something about John, in addition to his unique nature, there was something about him that was winsome. There was something about him that attracted people. There was something about him that was engaging. The way that he spoke, the conversations that he had, the directness that would have caught people off guard in his teaching and his preaching and his demeanor. And yet there was something about him that was in an unexplainable way likable. So much so that we're told that Herod liked to listen to him talk. See, it wasn't John's personality or his demeanor that got him into trouble. It was his message. See, John, unlike everybody else in Herod's life, would not be cowed by the fact that he was talking to a powerful ruler. Nor was he willing to soften his message of repentance and the gospel to make it more palatable to his hearers. So when Herod encouraged his sister-in-law Herodias to divorce his brother and become his wife, John would not remain silent. He couldn't. Here was this man with whom he had had interactions who was directly doing something against what God had commanded. And so John had to speak up. He had to tell him. Here he had been preaching the message of repentance, a message of repentance that undoubtedly Herod had heard before. And here is this man with whom he had some sort of a relationship walking into something where he was going to destroy his relationships horizontally and was going to hurt God by the very virtue of what it was he was about to enter into. And so John says, I I can't let this go without saying something about it. I have to say something to Herod. 
So he points out Herod's sin. He calls him to repent. And in that exchange, there's a lesson for us. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've heard, you've heard us talk at length about the offensive nature of the gospel. And the Bible speaks to it all the time. It talks about the idea that the, that, that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It talks about the cross itself being folly. It talks about the offense that the gospel is just by its very nature. But the lesson of John's life, at least one of the lessons of John's life, is to let the gospel be the only thing that's offensive about you. Let the gospel be the only thing that's offensive about you. I mean, this was certainly the attitude of Paul. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessings. This is the same sort of accusation that's made about Jesus. In fact, do you remember the accusations that the Pharisees had made in contrasting John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself? They said of John, here is this man who goes about, he's not eating normal food, he's not eating the diet that we partake in, he's not drinking wine like we do. And so the Pharisees mocked him and ridiculed him for these particularities about him. But then they saw Jesus eating food with sinners and drinking wine with sinners, and they said of him, here is this drunk and glutton and friend of sinners. But Jesus was not at all intimidated by the people with whom he was interacting. See, understand there will always be ways in which we as Christians are unusual. And if you read 1 Peter chapters 2 through 4, you'll find a laundry list of them. Ways that the, the first church was so different from the surrounding community and from the, the worldviews and philosophies that dominated the thinking at that time. They were so unique and so different. But understand this. Christians are not unusual for the sake of being unusual or for the sake of self-righteousness. In the ways that we are different, we're different because we are submitting ourselves to what God has called us to do. And we ought to be people who are winsome and approachable and kind and friendly. But by the same token, you cannot remove the offense of the gospel without losing the gospel itself. And to try to make the gospel more palatable to people by whitewashing our need for a savior or by softening the holiness of God, which we sang about earlier, to is to remove the necessity of the gospel altogether. Because when you communicate to people that ultimately what God is is a help to who you already are, an assistance program for the way that you're trying to improve your life, you have made him expendable. He is no longer necessary. 
And likewise, when you try to bring God down to our level, when you try to diminish his holiness and his character and his nature and his sovereignty and his providence and everything that makes God who he is, you eliminate the necessity for him altogether. So we have to ask ourselves as we're interacting with those who do not know Jesus Christ, we've got to ask ourselves, what is actually loving as we have gospel conversations with them? Because to many within the Christian realm and within many who would share the name of evangelical Christianity with us, it may initially seem loving to make the gospel more palatable and less offensive. But if we obscure someone's understanding of their needs for salvation, or if we minimize the sacrifice of Jesus that provides their salvation, that is the most unloving thing we can do. It's to do what Romans 1 particularly warns us against, which is encouraging people to continue on in the way that leads them to destruction. See, the gospel is offensive because it halts people in their tracks. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember years ago when my oldest son, Leo, was probably two years old, and he was just at that stage where he was running everywhere. I mean, he's barely out of that stage now, but he, he, he was in that stage where he just ran everywhere. He didn't know how to walk. He knew how to run. And I remember we were in the backyard of our house, and, and I remember um, looking away for just one second. And the second that I looked away, when I looked back, here's Leo running for the street. I mean, just at a dead sprint for the street. And there was a car parked right in front of where he was about to run out. And then right behind that, there was a, a truck coming down the road. And in about a split second, I remember thinking, Leo's going to run out into that street, and because of the way that car is parked, that truck will not be able to see him. And so I began to run after him and yell his name and chase him down and yell his name, and it didn't slow him down at all. And I remember getting to him right as he hit the curb and reaching out and grabbing him by the shoulder and yanking him back. And I remember as he cried, freaked out that I had grabbed him, probably hurting because I had grabbed his arm in that way. I remember him just looking at me, and I remember thinking... Had I not done that, do you know what would have happened next? Do you understand that God pursues you the very same way? That you are running headlong into destruction. And the offense of the gospel is to reveal to the individual the path they're on and what the end of the road looks like. And the beauty of the gospel is that it reveals the danger that lies in front of us. It reveals the destruction to which we're headed. And it pulls us away from danger. And John, by, by virtue of his engaging conversation and his welcome personality, he had earned the opportunity to speak directly, in a very direct fashion, to Herod. And John was able to do that because he had a firm understanding of who he was and who he wasn't. Here's what I mean. You'll, you'll, you'll recognize this from the call to worship this evening, which is originally from the book of Isaiah and is ultimately quoted um, by John the Baptist. You'll remember in, in the story that, that's told to us in John chapter 1, when the Jews first send priests and Levites out to greet John the Baptist, they've heard about his teaching, they've heard about his baptismal ministry, they've heard all kinds of details about who this man is, and so they send, they send their representatives out to find out who John the Baptist is. And so as the priests come onto the scene and as they see John the Baptist standing there, they ask him, who are you? We need an answer because we need to go back and be able to tell everyone who this person is that's preaching in the wilderness. And so they say, are you Elijah? 
Are you Elijah that's been sent once again on behalf of God to, to bring us a message? They say, are you the prophet? Referencing the, the prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy that it said that God would send a prophet to his people to reveal himself to them. And do you remember the response of John as he quotes the book of Isaiah? John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He, the Messiah, must increase, but I must decrease. See, John knew who he was. He didn't have, a, he didn't have an inflated sense of self-worth. He didn't think of himself highly. He was not proud and self-righteous. In fact, what he was saying was, this isn't about me at all. This is about Jesus. And because he knew who he was, because he was secure in his identity, when John found himself in a place where he needed to confront Herod for his sin before God and his mistreatment of his own family, he did not shy away. Herod imprisoned John simply for confronting him about his sin. And the question leaps off the page to the reader. If, if your honesty regarding the truth of God's word were to cost you something dear, would you still be willing to claim to it? Herod hated John's message. He hated the message of repentance. He hated the challenge to his own behavior. But he found himself so intrigued by John that he couldn't bring himself to kill him. And that's where he ultimately runs into trouble. Verse 19, and Herodias, this is Herod's wife, his former sister-in-law, who he's now married, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. See, the problem that Herod faced, according to one commentator, is this. Herodias felt that the only way her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. In other words, Herodias is thinking, as long as John the Baptist is still breathing, as long as he is still able to challenge my husband's actions, as long as he is able to continue to extend the gospel of reconciliation and repentance, my marriage is at stake this marriage that she should have never been in to begin with. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. You can imagine the scene that Mark discreetly paints for us. Food and wine have been imbibed to excess, and here comes this young, beautiful woman to perform a dance in front of powerful men. And rather than doing what he ought to have done, which was tell her to stop, the king said to the girl, verse 22, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. He's giving her a blank check. You tell me what you want, I'll make it happen, it's yours, verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. 
Herod is stunned and genuinely saddened. Despite his own cruelty and his own craftiness, he felt bad. I mean, he'd grown fond of John. He enjoyed his company. He enjoyed his teaching. He respected even God's, or John's relationship with God. But now in this moment, he determines to keep his promise, not out of a sense of honor, but out of a sense of his own hubris. Because his guests were there, he would not go back on his word. And in a very classic sense, what we find out is that two wrongs do not make a right. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in two. So what lessons do we draw from this story? Well, maybe you're here tonight as one who does not know Jesus. And maybe much like Herod, you're intrigued. You like the stories, you like the subculture, you like, you like the environment of Christianity. Maybe perhaps you're intrigued by the figures of Christianity. And the warning to you in this passage is do not make the mistake that Herod made. He listened, he was intrigued, but he continued on unmoved. And it wasn't for a lack of understanding. John was clear and direct and bold. And it wasn't for a sense of distance. John was known by this man. The truth is, we do not fully understand why Herod didn't respond to the teaching of John. I mean, perhaps he was afraid of what his friends would say, who've seen his vanity. Perhaps he was afraid of what his wife would think. We've seen him bow to her will. Perhaps, perhaps he was afraid to give up the life of leisure that he'd grown accustomed to. But ultimately, Herod's end was a sad one. In Luke chapter 23, at the trial of Jesus Christ, just before his crucifixion, there is this amazing scene that happens. And I encourage you to read it from Luke 23 23, when you have the opportunity. Herod, having heard about this man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, having heard about him now for years, finally gets the chance to meet him. Jesus is on trial in front of Pilate, and here is Herod to witness it all. And here's what we're told. We're told that he was actually happy, glad, to see Jesus. And you can just imagine the happy-go-lucky smile on Herod's face as he walks into the room, expecting to pick up where he left off with John the Baptist when he sees Jesus standing there. And so as soon as he walks in, he begins to pepper Jesus with questions. He's asking all sorts of details and asking him to do miracles and signs and wonders and to teach and to explain and to do all of these things. And there is a chilling verse in Luke chapter 23, verse 9, which says this, So he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. The moment had passed. All of the time 
that Herod had spent with John the Baptist, all the times he'd heard the gospel explained, all the times he'd been called to repentance, all the time that his own sin had been pointed out to him, he responded to none of it. And now in this moment, as he asks questions, Jesus is silent. We do not know how long we have to respond. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what God has in store for us. Now is the time to come to repentance. Now. And if you're here and you're hearing this, do you understand that God in his sovereign love brought you? whether you come here regularly or you were brought by somebody else or whether you'd rather be anywhere else in the world, do you understand that you're hearing this intentionally? See, Herod had already made his decision about Jesus. He didn't want Jesus. He wanted the things that Jesus could give him. And ultimately, in a twist of irony, Herod meets his fate. This man who wanted power and wanted acceptance and wanted the vain praise of other people happens to also be in power when the mad emperor Caligula comes into power. And Caligula, upon coming into his emperorship, showed favor to one of Herod's political rivals. And Herod's title and his wealth were stripped from him. And the friends whose opinion he valued so much were removed from him. And he spent the remainder of his life in exile until he died. The people that Herod wanted to impress, the lifestyle he adored, the power that he craved, were all taken from him. And likewise, the lessons we learned from John. John begins his life literally from the womb, if you read the story, as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. That's his whole call, is to be the one who goes before Jesus and tells people about Jesus and proclaims Jesus as the Messiah and calls people to repentance and points people to their hope in God. That's his whole life and ministry. And now in his death, John is still a forerunner of Jesus. As one commentator pointed out, both of these men, John and Jesus, are executed by political tyrants who feared them, but who gave in to social pressure. They both die as righteous and innocent victims. So back to where we first started, why did John the Baptist follow Jesus? If, in the words of Jesus Christ, John truly was the greatest man to have been born, which is what Jesus said about it. What was so valuable to him that he was willing to suffer this kind of brutal fate? Well, we find the answer in the first recorded words of John the Baptist as he sees Jesus coming toward him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, he followed Jesus because Jesus was worthy. 
because Jesus was the Savior. He followed even unto death because he realized that Jesus was more valuable than status or acceptance or wealth or comfort. And in pointing to Jesus, here is what John was ultimately saying. He's saying, do you want to be confident in the face of fear like I am? Do you want to be able to stand up to the pressures and even the persecution that you may have to endure? You won't be able to do that until you actually understand and look to the one to whom I point and what he did on the cross. And what was it that Jesus did for us on the cross? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, the fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. See, John was confident because he knew that ultimately Herod didn't have the final say over his life. In one sense, Herod was right to fear the idea that John had risen from the dead. Now he'd truly been beheaded, but in Christ he lived eternally. Mark records the words for Jesus, the words of Jesus rather, in chapter 10 of his book when he says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And upon his death, John received the ultimate prize. He received the reward of being with his Savior. Where from the mouth of Jesus, he would ultimately hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And only by looking to Jesus as our everything, Will we have the identity and the confidence that we need in the ministry that we've been given? That no matter what comes, we have a secure and safe identity that cannot be removed. And the promise of eternal life with our Savior. That is the invitation to you of John's life the Savior that he ultimately worshipped. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the recorded life of your servant John. God, we thank you what it reveals to us about what we live for, what we value, what we hold close and dear. We thank you for the way that it reveals the things upon which we're relying that ultimately cannot bear the weight of the burden that we place on them. We thank you for the confidence that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the identity that only Jesus can give, the boldness and the confidence in the face 
in the face of mistreatment, in the face of difficulty, in the face even of persecution. So God, we do not know what lies ahead and we don't pretend to. But we pray expectantly that you will prepare our hearts. Help us to find our hope and our confidence in you and in you alone. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.